Hey friends, I'm so glad you've joined us for another episode of the podcast. On today's show, we're going to be talking about myth, but not the way that you might have thought about it. We're talking about the ways in which we all narrate our lives, we narrate our reality, and we share our values and meaning with our children and people around us through the stories we tell. There's also a way, though, in which not understanding myth can be really dangerous. There's another thing that we learned today on this show, and that is that sometimes having a myth that seems really beautiful and wonderful can be problematic for our healing and our mental health and our ability to cope with the day-to-day struggles of life. We're going to be discussing this in light of the 25th of December, the idea that Jesus was born on December 25th. Notice here, friends, that no matter who you are, unless you're on the kind of fringes of conspiracy theories, you probably believe, as all good historians do, that a dude named Jesus existed, right? But most people, not even conservative Christians, will also recognize that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. What is the truth behind the claim that he was born on that day? It has to do with the winter solstice. It has to do with the longest night of the year. And the idea that Jesus came into the world to bring hope in a world of darkness is either true or false, but in a different way. If what Jesus teaches is not hopeful, then you might say he didn't get born on the 25th of December. But if in fact, in the midst of human darkness, Jesus brings a message and a reality and good news, then this myth is true. And so even if he was actually born on June 23rd or November 5th, it wouldn't really make a a difference for this important piece of the puzzle. We're going to discuss this concept of myth in the first segment. And we're going to do this with our oldest son, Augie. And Augie is going to share a little bit about his thoughts related to two things. One, the, the way in which modern myth needed to be revamped in light of the way we thought about psychology. But then he's going to go deep with us into a cartoon called Bojack Horseman. And he's going to explain to us something that I did not want to believe, but I really am sold on now, that if you understand the message of Bojack Horseman, it's going to make it a lot easier for you to cope with your life, the ins and outs, the ups and downs of everyday existence. If you understand the way that Bojack Horseman is really critical of a prevalent myth in popular culture, in the movies, and in sitcoms. In the second segment, after we're done talking with Augie about the myth of Bojack Horseman, we then transition to a conversation with our new friend, Wayne Boyd. Wayne has just come up with a book called The 20th Miracle. And in this book, what he's doing is he's reflecting on his life and looking at things that he didn't see as miracles originally, but he starts to realize as he re-narrates his life the ways in which there were all these divine connections, things that were very, very positive and helpful for him as he has grown and progressed throughout his life. Wayne retired recently as a military chaplain. Interesting guy. He's a pacifist who was a military chaplain. So that must have been fun. We'll talk with him about that and other things in the second segment. Now, friends, before we get started, I want to tell you about a way that you can help us and you can support us financially without too much strain. What you can do is you can go to our website, protectyournoggin.org, and you can just go to the store and you can buy nothing. That is, you can leave us a $5 tip 
And you can do that just by clicking on this cute little picture that we took in Huntington Beach of pelicans. If you click on that, you can give us a tip of $5. You can also do that in increments of $5. So if you wanted to, you could you know, get three tips put into that thing. And uh, that'll be a way that you can give a one-time gift to us. If you want to be even more helpful to us, you can go and you can click on the tab that says give us a tip. I know they both say tip, but you can go to Patreon. And on our Patreon account, you can, for $5 a month, get some really nice extra stuff. Starting in January, if you are a patron through Patreon and you give just $5 a month or more, you will be able to receive each week a reflection on one chapter of the Tao Te Ching. There's 81 chapters, they're short, and we're translating them, and you will be able to get those before they come out in published form. In addition, you will get a little written reflection, and most importantly, Stacy will be doing an audio reflection that both reads the translation and also then reflects on how we can apply that chapter of the Tao Te Ching to our daily lives. Those usually are going to be seven to 12 minutes. So a great way to start your week. In addition, we are offering patrons two chapters a month of the book that we're going to be going through for the podcast starting in January, and that is going to be Protect Your Noggin with Jesus. So these are 12 chapters, ultimately, that are going to take the words of Jesus and show how Jesus can help us to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery, from bad religious ideas and bad relationships. And essentially, we'll be using the words of Jesus to help us defend ourselves from bad people who have the logo of Jesus, but maybe not the spirit of Jesus. If you want to be getting those exclusive chapters before they're released and read along with us as we do the podcast, all you got to do is just be a $5 or more monthly patron through Patreon. For those of you who are already tippers, we want to say thank you so much. For instance, Eric is a new tipper. We thank you so much. It is so great as we you know get up in the morning and get our coffee and start translating, and we see that somebody new has joined the team and has joined the group of friends. Maybe we could call you the Order of the Great Pyrenees, the folks that are the heroes that are looking out for those folks who need protection from the wolves. We are helping each other outfox religious wolves, and we're doing it together. Thanks for your support. Let's get going. All ahead, one-third. All ahead, one-third. Aye, aye. Stand by to dive. Diving stations. Dive. Dive. Welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons in outfoxing religious wolves. And sometimes we will address emotionally difficult subjects, so make sure you pay careful attention to our descriptions of each of the episodes. And then also have some resources handy, such as the Crisis Text Line. That's one of our favorites, which is 741-741. That's 741-741. Now, just take a deep breath, because we're not afraid to go deep. But don't worry, because we'll also have some fun along the way. Our plan is to help us all resurface with insights and tools to help heal ourselves and our communities. So come along, because we got this. Hey, everybody, we're here at the Mallinson family home. It's almost Christmas. It's our last Christmas with the kids. 
before they graduate. Augie's going to graduate. Augustine Charles Viator Mallinson. A.K.A. Frogstein. Frogstein. F-R-A-U-G. Website will be up soon. Doing some graphic design. But you were with me on the old podcast. You were starting out in the early days doing some of the sound tech. And you had, with your buddy, you were doing the music, the intro music. Mm -hmm. And you were on one episode about video games. That is true. (laughs) That That was was how many years ago? (laughs) (laughs) Had to be a lot. He done grew up. Yes. And he's uh, almost graduating from the college, and that's really good. We're going to get to him in a bit. You're going to jump in at any moment. But for this show, we're talking about myth and the ways in which we need to get better at understanding how myth operates day-to-day in our normal lives and the ways in which that's not just for scholars. That's for all of us as we understand the way myth shapes the way we see the world, how we interact with each other, and how we think about politics and all sorts of things. But the first order of business to me, I think, Stacy, is we got to talk about Christmas. Yes. Christmas is coming up. Yes. There is a band called Dub Conscious. And I want you to say, friends, listen, go to the Dow Surfers YouTube channel is where we have a few things that we're throwing up there. But most important to me is the playlist of dub and reggae. And one of the songs on there is Dub Conscious. I, as, I, as I had... Uh... Reflected on the playlist sometimes when, when Christmas time can get a little stressful. And I like Christmas music often, but it's kind of fun to listen to something else and have a little bit of reggae or something to calm me down. So it's, it's I, appreciate, I appreciate this playlist that Jeff created. And if you need a break from, you know, Christmas, just like the franticness, then you can just relax a little bit to some reggae. You, you, have, the, you have the flow there, that, that relaxing anti-anxiety flow. And they have a line... It's a, a song that starts out called um, Wishful Thinking. He says, I would bet you a million dollars that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. The whole point of the story is knowing that it's a myth. Now, this is not to say that Jesus didn't exist. Uh, Bart Ehrman, the, you know, he, he ain't no fundamentalist, is, I think, somebody who's done a very good job to show that Jesus actually existed. But the, the idea that Jesus was born on December 25th is the myth. But the point of it is that this is on the winter solstice. And the, the winter solstice, it's the darkest time of the year. So as our ancestors saw the light getting uh, less and less, and, you know, the days are getting shorter and shorter, it's at a moment when you say, don't worry, the light's coming back. So the darkness is getting pushed out now. The light's coming back in. And Stacy, your birthday... Is on June 25th, which is really close to the summer solstice, which would be, what, June 21st. And you are on the same day as the Feast of John the Baptist. <laughs> and this is because John the Baptist says, I must decrease and he must, must increase. increase. Gotcha. So you're on, the, you're on that opposite end of the spectrum. Augie and I both have the same birthday. What is it, buddy? December 31st. Woohoo! Man, oh man. New Year's we, Eve, baby. The only thing that's sad is, is uh, now we don't get to have New Year's Eve as much. Well, he probably would have hung out with his friends. <laughs> he's he's going to hang out with his friends this year, even, yes. When I've studied religion, I notice that there are uh, these kind of intersections or these this kind of overlapping of religious history and just general Western narrative. It's this it's this kind of myth that the the so called radical Orthodox thinkers like John Milbank and others have described as the myth of the secular. And the myth of the secular is this idea that the smarter we get as a society, the smarter we get as a culture, the less religious we will be, uh, or at least the less religious we need to be. And the problem is, 
that uh, in, in the wake of 9-11 and 2001 and other things, we see that religion isn't really going away. And at the same time, people are also needing to find some kind of spiritual sustenance. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the reasons that Stacy and I are interested in the Tao Te Ching is re kind of configuring what spirituality means. Right. And he has some very practical advice. He being Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu, yes. Um, throughout the Tao Te Ching of, of ways that you can incorporate. It's a, in a sense, it can be a spirituality, but it's, just, it's a way of life. It's a way of yeah. being. And so you can own it as a portion of your spirituality or you, you know, or you could obviously just read about it and not practice it at all, which is one of the chapters that mentions that too, that some people will just hear it and, you know, and then it won't do anything for them. But other people, they will take some of it to heart. And when you apply some of it to your life, I think um, it offers a grounding or a foundation, if you will, for those that want to embrace it, to then hopefully flourish in life. Yeah. And you, you've been looking at, in chapter one, the ways in which the, this eternal something, mm-hmm. this pre-existent force like the logos. The nameless, the yes. The nameless. Then, t- uh, then takes ex- expression in the physical world. And uh, we're going to get to this by the time we get to the end with Augie, and that is that for a long time, people have thought, well, you're either just going to be a materialist, you're just dealing with the world you know, on its own terms, or you're dealing with this kind of otherworldly spirituality. And uh, these aren't integrated. And uh, Lao Tzu is really good at saying, no, you've got to bring these things together. Right. And Jesus brings these things together. And that's kind of the whole point. This, this kind of distant father God in the sky, how do we know who this is? The, the narrative of Christianity is that all of a sudden this little manger, this humble little manger, the incarnate one enters into the world. So you've got this, this connection. You've got the very, very tiny baby Jesus who is the embodiment of the infinite deity. You know? And so th- this too is mythical. Even if you believe, and, and even if it turns out that in fact, no, there really was a, you know, this scene where there's a manger and there's a young woman given birth and there's no room in the inn and all of this, the, the thing that I think a lot of people in the West do is they forget to read things mythically and they forget a lot of the importance of what that means. So in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the, the nativity is as important as Easter. It's part of the beginning of this consummation of all things through Jesus. It's the light coming into the darkness. No, in yeah, and, and spring and new birth and, and re- the resurrection, right? Right, so that then, yeah, so Easter then is very conveniently in the, the mm. spring equinox. Mm-hmm. But, and then, of course, you've got the, the fall, in the fall, you've got the commemoration of the dead, as yeah. you, as you all kind of see. Day. But anyway, so this idea of the myth of the secular is not just that we are getting smarter, but it's the idea that religious ideas evolve. You start with animism, uh, our you know archaic ancestors are shamanistic and they believe in these little spirits and then as they develop they start to get into polytheism where you've got multiple gods and the gods are a little bigger and then they start to just worship the one chief god especially in the near east um, Judaism uh, as it's forming and Akhenaten the monotheistic um, pharaoh but the um, then this then kind of keeps going from monotheism to deism, where you have an intelligent designer who doesn't really tinker with the world. And eventually the idea is we're all going to grow up, we're going to be smart big people, and we're not going to need religion anymore. 
And the, this is the myth of the secular, that this is now the way that we're going to deal with the world is through this pure neutrality. And as long as we're neutral, then we don't have to worry at all about all these superstitious things. And that just didn't seem to work well enough for folks. And the bigger problem is the modern myth that we don't have mythology anymore is the big problem because you get the Third Reich who, you know, with, with Hitler, there's this creation of this idea of a millennium. This is like this messianic kind of myth of Hitler. Or Stalin, we're going we're gonna to achieve this eschaton, this end times with anarchy, you know, someday. But we've got to go through the dictatorship of the proletariat. The point is that in the secular world, too, people are dealing with myth. They just don't call it myth. And I think sometimes that makes it the most dangerous. Well, and so by myth, I guess on this very basic level, are you referring to like sort of story? Uh, the stories that we tell ourselves, even yes. with our ancestors and things like that? Myth is that. It's not falsehood. It's the narratives that we tell to share with our children what virtues we care about, what a hero looks like, and what a villain looks like. It's um, a way of explaining how we got to the situation that we're in. And uh, it gives us kind of an inspiration and meaning for why it matters, right? You know, why did the establishment come to be this way, and, and how did this eventually get to this state, mm-hmm. and why we should preserve it? And when those stories don't work anymore, we stop caring, mm. right? So when we, like in, in our current day, when we stop caring about, you know, how the Constitution formed, then we kind of get into these partisan, you know, kind of trenches, but we're not really thinking anymore about this big story that got us to this experiment that was the United States. And so with all that in mind, Augie was the other day hanging out with us, and he had a really interesting take I think on the um, on the importance of something that happened with mind and body in the in the modern world. So you go back to uh, Gilbert Ryle is writing in uh, the middle of the 20th century, uh, reflecting more on the philosophy of science and uh, the relationship between physical science and uh, psychological science. And his big problem was that he was complaining that uh, psychology was not really able to make uh, positive progress at the time because. Science had adopted a mind-body dualist um, uh, structure for the way you're going to deal with the world. So you see physics, uh, and you have the nuclear uh, physics and uh, progress in that area. And then in the field of psychology, the expectation was that they were going to figure out how the mechanics of psychology worked. Uh, but ultimately, what Ryle points out is that that wasn't, that wasn't getting anyone anywhere. He identifies the problem then with this... Uh, separate understanding of mind and body as uh, separate but um, mirrored realms of knowledge. But what he ultimately comes to say is not that uh, this mind-body conception was bad, that it was... uh, It wasn't evil. It wasn't evil, and it wasn't even... uh, Impractical. It wasn't impractical, but it also uh, was not in opposition to science. It was not a problem. It was a helpful mode of thinking. It was a helpful myth. Uh, for science for a while so that they could get to the point they were at. But his main point was that uh, it was no longer needed and it was now starting to hamper uh, Mm. progress. So his uh, way of looking at this as a myth is more that you have to look at the myths that you believe in and see how that might be affecting the way you're operating the world. And just because you have a myth doesn't mean it's bad or good. You have to see maybe it worked in the past, maybe it's not working now. You have to keep looking forward. 
And that's really important for the field of psychology because in psychology, it starts out as kind of a pseudoscience with not too much interest in facts. You know, uh, Freud and, and Carl Gustav Jung are just kind of, uh, you know, sort of making things up as they go, really interesting stuff, but it wasn't always, you know, wasn't tied to Likert scales or, you know, clinical research. So that, that you know, is, is not too far off from the same question that we're interested in, Stacy and I, with, with respect to what spirituality is. That, in, in fact, there might have been a time when seeing the whole world as kind of animated by spirits, that, that works kind of well. And there's a lot that we gained through methodological atheism. That is like separating God out from our research and not really worrying about the soul so much, but treating the human being like a machine helps us to get medicines and things that we enjoy today instead of just, you know, herbal, you know, kind of spiritual healing of, of, I don't know if herbal is the exact thing, but there's traditional medicines that involve more than just the scientific clinical study. Realizing that we are biochemical beings that, (laughs) that has an effect on what our moods and everything else, right? Yeah. Yeah, because we but, used to forget about that. But the key point to this is that uh, you have to make sure you understand that even if you're operating in the world a certain way, that is greatly informed by myth. And so current scientific models approximate maybe the best way that they uh, are able to look at the world, but they're not uh, reality itself. Mm-hmm. You're still filtering it through these uh, myths such as like a Cartesian dualism or something like that where you might be getting closer to the truth, you might even go back a little bit, whatever it is, uh, in a practical sense, trying to make practical uh, advances. But regardless, it's not as if you figured it out now. It's still a myth. It's a different type of myth. And so you can't forget that part. I think that last piece is one of the most important ones in terms of the way I think people come against over and over they come against this this anxiety that comes from not being able to get finality that is we watch the old fairy tales and then everybody lives happily ever after or you blow up the death star and that's over wait a minute a new death star comes and you blow that up and now we've got more you know um, I think that's part of it, right? And that's a very prevalent myth uh, in media is the myth of like a resolution at the end or something like that. And um, it doesn't sound exactly like a myth in the way that we talk about like ancient Greek or uh, Norse mythology. We kind of tend to understand that as maybe more as an ancient religion or some kind of cultural story. Right. We don't see how uh, we have very similar counterparts to uh, stories that we actually believe in, even if we don't believe in the literal details. So you, of course, don't believe that Star Wars actually happened. Right. You, don't, you don't believe that these are historical events, necessarily. But in the beginning, it says, in a galaxy, uh, far, 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 away. Far, <laughs> galaxy far, far away, within the myth, it's being presented as if it's true and as if it actually happened. And that's something that you see going all the way back to ancient mythologies. It's always presented as if this is something that happened, and you as the uh, reader or the interpreter have to kind of make sense of what that means. But you're not expected, for in the example of Star Wars, to take it literally. However, it still represents a myth that many people actually do believe in. Right. So just because it's not true doesn't mean that people aren't actually living their lives as if these sorts of myths are true. Or you could say it wasn't historical or factual, but it is a way of but, understanding the world. You're living as if it's true. So it could exactly. be true and also not factual in exactly. a sense. Yeah. Exactly. 
So Stacey, like with yeah. what Star Wars, what the the ultimate fight, good of good versus evil kind of thing. And is, maybe there is an ultimate fight versus uh, good versus evil, evil. Yeah. Uh, but we don't necessarily know that for sure. It's a myth that is heavily ingrained within media and within other things, right? But that also is what's going on with you know. I, are we going to see Star Wars anytime this weekend? I would like to. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Whoop, whoop. But the but the thing that's interesting about Star Wars is that there is this battle going on right now with the different chefs, you know, the different um, creators of these films, kind of fighting with each other about what the myth is. And so you've got the Last Jedi. You're you're saying uh, no, we're going to burn down the temple. We're going to we're going to kind of almost discard some of the things that had crept in. Like the the myth that there's something special about a Skywalker. There's mm. that kind of racial that your blood, element that your bloodline that. or whatever, or mattered. or right, or that you need the priesthood, and then they get rid of that. Well, what if they? You know, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen this weekend when we see it, but there mm. there is, I think, already word that that there is this kind of battle going on for for folks who didn't like the uh, Last Jedi. I think they're not going to like this. That's, what, that's, that's, what, that's what you read. But I, could, I can't <laughs> so remember we'll if find that's out. true. We'll see. But see, why does that matter? And why do people get all fired up about it? It's, it's because they so actually cool. believe in these myths. Yeah. Right. Well, and they, and they feel like, yeah, somehow it goes down in history that this is the end of the way it ends. And then what did that myth tell us? And the finality of that, leaving it in that way, can either be soothing for some folks or extremely upsetting, right? <laughs> even when we don't know the language about mythology, we, even if we don't think about it critically, people at an intuitive level really, really understand what's going on. That's why people were angry when there was this, people thought, of, you know, a heavy-handed push for uh, egalitarianism and diversity in the more recent Star Wars film. Why does that matter? Because what it's saying is this is the way the universe is. It's actually telling a story about the universe. Mm-hmm. And if, if, the, you know, if you can't kill Palpatine, like what does that say about the world? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a, and that's a, that's a heavy-duty well, kind of thing. And kind of to that point, I was looking at some archetypes and things like that and realized... So, so archetype is very similar to myths and mythology. They're and, components of myths. Right, that they are characters, if you will, that are a part of these myths... Described by Carl Gustav Jung, these are things that bubble to the surface through folktale and, and legends. So like a wizard, for instance, right. and w- you know what the wizard might look like. You probably automatically have an image that pops into your head when I say that. And he or, looks like Gandalf and Santa Claus and mm-hmm. Obi-Wan and, and Dumbledore. Or think about a librarian, right. and they're probably somebody wearing glasses. <laughs> you know, there's different things like that. But I realized, too, even the Enneagrams themselves are basically archetypes, essentially, yes. that they see that there's some, there's some commonality throughout humanity, and then we're classifying these different little subtypes. Put and them into a story, and not only can you figure out how the witch gets overthrown by the wizard, you can understand how to deal with your aunt that's crazy. Yeah, you know, these are exactly. The but the thing that I really was excited to get Augie uh, to chat with us about is this show... This animated cartoon called Bojack Horseman. Bojack which just, Horseman. It made me feel like I, I just see it on the TV, and I think I've got the flu, and I don't want any of that. Netflix original, so... Tell me about this show, and what is it, what is it doing? Because you're saying that it actually has more... There's more importance to it than you might realize at first. I, I think uh, even if you disagree with the show, it is important in that it's, it's definitely delivering a message. It's not like a weekly 
let's forget about our problems and laugh kind of show. So it, it is saying something for sure. And that's on one level, uh, something that you don't always see a ton of in animated shows. Right. Uh, but what's uh, particularly interesting about it, and this comes from uh, a YouTube video we'll have to link to. I will link to it on protectyournoggin.org. Uh, because this is not all my original thought, but it's an interesting analysis. And important. And it has a little bit of spoilers about the seasons. It definitely does, yes. So if you don't want yeah. that and you want to watch the seasons, then do it later, then just but keep that it in It drives home the point uh, very well. The idea behind the philosophy of uh, BoJack Horseman is that uh, BoJack Horseman himself, the main character, is a uh, he was a star in the 90s in a sitcom. And basically now you're seeing his life after that, trying to uh, understand himself in the world. Uh, after this moment of greatness and now kind of falling into uh, being a washed-up former celebrity, right? Mm-hmm. And it, what it really highlights on is this cultural myth. It's been deeply ingrained through uh, various forms of media. You see it from Star Wars. Uh, you see it from Harry Potter. You see it all around. But it's the uh, idea that at the end of the movie or at the end of the show or whatever it is, the example that they draw on heavily in the video is uh, like The Simpsons, where you have this uh, story arc that goes through the episode. But at the end, everyone's just about the same where they left off as they were at the beginning, maybe a little bit better. Mm -hmm. That ultimately there's a happy ending and that there's resolution. One of the best lines from the show goes something like, closure is uh, made up by Spielberg to sell movie tickets. and so the show is tackling the sense of closure as as an easy thing to get and ultimately throughout the show you see these moments where bojack through his career is trying to get this final closure where he's like all right i made it i'm happy now i got my oscar or i got my book published or whatever it is right but he's not happier he doesn't have that happy ending that he lived through his uh, time acting in this show where at the mm-hmm. end of the episode everyone gets around uh, the Christmas tree and hugs, and yeah, yeah. it's all great, right. despite whatever happened. Uh, in BoJack Horseman, part of the crux of it is the idea that there's always a next day. And so there can be, you can enjoy that moment, but if you're staking your happiness on that final moment of closure, you're ultimately going to be disappointed when the next day you have to wake up. You know, this was a real life example when, when, Jeff got done with his PhD. It's like one of those things where you, something you've been working on for so long. Oh yeah. And then you you do your defense, and then it's like, okay, yeah, you got it. And that then was it's terribly sad. And then it's like, now what? You know? Yeah. So is happiness rooted in getting that thing you want, or getting to that status that you want, or whatever it is? And when you phrase it that way, it kind of seems uh, pretty obvious. No, things don't get you happiness, or whatever. But Nonetheless, that's still the cultural mythology that we've been telling ourselves for so long. Yeah. That even if it's not the material things that will get you happiness, it's whatever that achievement is or getting that job or whatever. Um, but it also turns around and it applies to negative periods of time too. And this was uh, where it kind of goes from being maybe a cynical show to actually something that could be very hopeful. You might not have that happy ending at the end of the day. You might have a terrible day. But then when you wake up after a terrible day, your next day only can be a little bit better. Mm-hmm. It can't be the worst day of your life. Right. That. It's, not, it's not all catastrophe or, or the victory at the end of the Star It's Wars. about the up and downs of life and how that's a natural progress. And you can improve yourself. You can uh, work towards becoming a kinder person. 
I'm a more empathetic person. You can treat the people in your, in your life with uh, joy and you can uh, try to do the best you can, but that's all you really have. You, don't, you can't fix all the problems by getting to the, a level of achievement that you want. And that's one of the most important things, I think, for this, this, uh, this thing we're doing on the show about protecting your noggin and toxic people. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes what, one of the things that BoJack Horseman, I think, demonstrates is that somebody who is kind of an a-hole, it, they're not just going to get better overnight. Exactly. And so you know, we work. say, hey, and if people aren't willing to do the work, you can't just say, well, I'm sorry. And like, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I know there's a lot of people, Stacey, in your life, there have been people that would do something really mean to you mm-hmm. and say, oh, I'm sorry about that. Let's just like, you know, right. I'm, I'll stop. I won't, I'll be better. That's the first step, but that's not the end of the, that's not the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. As you'd see it in uh, just a traditional sitcom, you can't get everyone around and say, "Oh, we resolved our differences." I mean, it takes time. It takes well, and, and words are empty with you know. It it just feels it, it, well, and it might be fine so the first time. Then you can feel like, "Okay, I, I'm ready to move forward," right? But then they go and turn around and do the same thing again. Exactly, and, and then that's, that's what the show is definitely focused on. Is this, right. this idea that if you're going to repeat the same mistakes over and over again, then you're that's kind of who going. you are. That's who you yeah, are. Yeah, right. right. And we have, and that's the other thing, that we have this image of who we are. As a great person. Yeah. You think that you're good. There's a, a really important section, I think, in the Tao Te Ching. And it's, um, it's related to, it's like 54, 55, 56, those chapters are all kind of dealing with this idea that the Tao and enlightenment in the Tao is exactly what Bojack Horseman is talking about. It's this... It's this daily grind. So, for instance, in 54, Lao Tzu says, foster duh, that's like virtue. So I'll just say virtue for now. Foster virtue in yourself, and it will be genuine. Foster virtue in your family, and it will thrive. Foster virtue in your town, it will be enduring. Foster virtue in the state, and it will flourish. Foster virtue all over the world, and it will be ubiquitous. What he's saying is, is that you don't just... You don't just preach, hey, everybody, let's, like, you know, let's be cool. Let's love each other. Or let's, you know. No, it takes a lot of work. It mm-hmm. takes... It, you know, because you were Augie saying too that this this um, if you don't mind me jumping on on a different subject, it's kind of similar. There's this idea that you know, in the modern world, that old idea of the family isn't important anymore, mm-hmm. and that you were kind of surprising me a little bit as being a, like a little bit more like family values in the sense. Like, yeah. How would you how would you describe? Well, it? I think it's funny. In a couple of my classes, I, I tend to be one of the more liberal people in the room, and you know, that is what it is. But uh, it was funny because. I was coming around to it and I was saying, you know what, family values actually is one of the most important things that you can try to uh, go for in our current uh, culture and uh, society if you want to actually improve uh, the world. However, that doesn't necessarily mean what it meant to... Right. Hierarchy, patriarchy, your sure. dad owns the daughter. It's not that, but that it, the importance of the nurture. And it doesn't have to be uh, a nuclear family in the same way. Like Some people are going to be in a uh, family with a single parent. And it, just because they only have a single parent doesn't mean that they have to be uh, excluded from this healthy home. You can do whatever you can with your situation to try to make it the best as possible. But that is partly dealing with this other myth that I think was one that really hurt society with the, with the baby boomers, to be fair, of the baby boomers trying to find themselves. So the baby boomers are trying to find themselves, and then they kind of ignored very often the kids' well-being. There was a generation before that that you might have, you know, who knows I wasn't there, but they were very active. Maybe they were a little strict. So you went from this kind of 
the story of the strict parent that was like kind of in your business. Leave it to Beaver kind yeah, of thing. To then to then, you know, not not really paying attention to your kids and so there is a little bit of neglect there. And I think we are living some, somewhat with the the repercussions of that. What happens in a family? We tell these stories. Like we were we were hanging out with like my sisters, my younger sisters and uh, Augie and your fiance uh, Sydney, we were all hanging out and I realized none of these kids knew the story of your great grandfather who decided that, you know, he lived through the depression. He, he wasn't going to fix his hernia. He was just going to use a belt and cinch that up because he only had a few more years to live. And, and, uh, and so like here was this guy, he died as a millionaire, but he had the same carpet since the depression. He, he had been mm-hmm. in, you know, a, a madman. He was a, um, not a madman, but, you know, a, a, a well, he would, he would buy, he would buy everything based on what was on sale and buy a whole bunch of it. So stockpile on the things that he can get for a cheap price. He, and then he would, wouldn't want to throw away anything that had any kind of potential future useful value. And that's kind of, and that's mythical in the sense that it's important also for understanding then why, you know, like my mom was super into buying things on eBay, mm-hmm. right? So you, you have, here's this guy who was not spending any money and then right. my mom was going to spend money. And it doesn't make sense unless you see it in terms of this, like this larger narrative. Right. And, but then as far as the Bojack Horseman thing goes, and I think this is, this is really where I think this is important for you, the dear listener. That is that as we look at things that are in, enlightening, healing, helpful, one of the biggest frustrations, I think Stacy, you and I have both found is that we will have these insights and kind of, you can call it enlightenment, you know, just <laughs> like these, these, wow, realizations. And then we're really down on ourselves and each other, I think sometimes, mm-hmm. for not living up to what we realized. Right. So we had this. We, we well, can we see the vision this. of this beautiful other side, right? But it's hard to stay there. And so when Augie was sharing with us about Bojack Horseman, the thing that happened was first I was sad because he demythologized my universe. And then I was happy because I needed a better myth. And the myth was one I think that, like, Allen uh, Ginsberg would understand. When it's time to die, you die. When it's time to eat, you eat. When it's time to stand up and dance, you dance. You, you're living in that current moment, and you're doing the best you can with what you've got, but you can't kind of think of it as having been finished. The whole thing's finished, either the victory or the loss. It's, we just keep going. Well, in other words, you're not a protagonist. And that at first sounds disheartening, yeah. But you realize it's also freeing. You don't have to be uh, the Harry Potter or the Luke Skywalker. You're, you're yourself, and you will you'll have to live life as yourself. One, you can't put the pressure on yourself yeah. to be the protagonist. Me and Augie know this one. Problems. Me you and Augie know this one because Augie and I are both the oldest of the <laughs> of the generation. And so, like Augie was a little messiah. Everybody cared about Augie. Few few kids in. Nobody cared about them. I mean, you know, they care, but you know, it's like the same thing with me. And that I think would you say that that put a little pressure on you in life? A little, yeah, bit? yeah. Uh, it's the idea that like any any one person, if you sit down to write a book, you might have this internalized idea that this book has to change the world, or that it has to um, right that it has to somehow add to uh, the story, right? And it uh, will, and it but, will, and it. But realistically, you're legendary looking, way no. that you're supposed to. Yeah, you can't try to be. I'm going to be the Dickens of uh, my era, and I'm going to just be uh, legendary, right? And have all this impact. That's probably, according to Lao Tzu, the surest way not to become Dickens. Exactly. <laughs> but all you really can realistically hope for is like maybe you help three people. At Concordia, 
you have you you are the the student who who has taken over something that Dan Van Voris got started with Caleb Cargis mm-hmm. back in uh, back in the day. So I've been Lee the student, student coordinator for it's them. It's kind of an honors club, but you don't have to have specifically great grades. You just got to give a crud. Yeah, it's about talking about deeper questions, looking at what what are the what are you interested in academically. It doesn't have to be like a lecture, but more kind of an open conversation. So you had a com- you had a conversation uh, at a retreat. So we had a retreat, and the theme was narrative and um, how these shape our lives and things like that. One of the most powerful uh, talks that one of the professors gave was how, from an early age, he had uh, internalized this idea that he had a destiny. Mm-hmm. That because uh, after surviving an uh, incident early on in life, he must have been kept alive for a purpose. Mm. There must be some reason why he needed to keep going on. Right. But, and ultimately, like that, that sounds positive. It sounds like, oh, like you're going to... Right. Find a this destiny. You're gonna find something uh, to live for, but ultimately you're just putting too much pressure on yourself. You can't live up to that. Mm. And the moment you realize that, it's very heartbreaking because you will realize it one day mm-hmm. that your life is not a movie. Yeah, you're not going to blow up the Death Star, or yeah. you're not going to uh, save Hogwarts or whatever. Yeah. It is. Well, I mean, you might. I, you just might. Yeah. But there's no expectation that you right. I mean, I remember my, my favorite memory of Augie's wisdom when we were, oh man, it's so long ago. I think I turned 33. We were in Colorado. We were kind of wrestling with the problems of, you know, whether I should stay there uh, or, or for political, ideological reasons, leave. Mm-hmm. And the first thing was great was I said, you know, Augie, what do you think I should do? And of course, he always says, you know what to do. <laughs> and... But then he started putting, he put his little fingers on my shoulders and he was, a, he was like poking, he had two fingers on each shoulder and he was poking them, poking his shoulder. I said, what are you doing there, buddy? He says, that's what it would feel like if you had a conscience. Because <laughs> in the cartoons, you know, you get the angel and the devil. And, you call, and he started calling them the shoulder dancers, right? Yeah, shoulder dancers. But the, the, um, but the thing that he said, and this was, and this was good because I was saying, I'm 33 years old and I, I just, I haven't done anything great. And that was that same thing. Like, I'm supposed to do something great. I was a child actor, you know, like, that I failed, remember, that I remember, yeah, when Augie was just a little, a little guy, we were driving on the freeway, five freeway south, you know, heading home, and you're like, I just have, you know, I have this, you had this feeling that you were invincible, um, that for some reason you wouldn't die, right? Because I had this purpose. You I had this thing. purpose. And then there was a, a certain point in our lives when you were like, and probably around this time you're talking about, yeah. and you're like, wait a minute, I don't think I have that same shield of protection that I felt yeah, like I had, true. you know, and, and that maybe I could die now type but, of thing. Yeah, and, I, and it was at this time I said, well, like, I think Bonhoeffer died at this point, mm. and he had already written all these great things. And, I mean, I'm still assigning Bonhoeffer texts to students, and I'm 45, I don't think I'm going to have anything that people, you know, it'll be interesting here and there. Maybe you'll footnote me. But you're not going to, you're not, you know, it's not going to be something you study as part of your reader. And um, that was bumming me out when I was 33. You know, I'm glad I got over it. <laughs> but, um, but Augie said, don't worry, Pops. If you were in Bonhoeffer's shoes, you could have gotten killed too. <laughs> you would have been fine. You just have to be in the spot. Like, you know, like, Maybe you're just going to be a librarian. Maybe you're going to be a seminary professor that has to go rogue and create a, an underground seminary, and then maybe you have to, you know, get involved in a plot to overthrow your Führer. 
But you can't be living with that false expectation that you are the Luke Skywalker or the Harry Potter that has to be doing that. Because if anything else, you're just going to create problems for yourself so that you can overcome them. And perhaps society, by the way. (laughs) Or, yeah, no, or, like, I could have, and I've seen people do this, have a martyr complex and then, like, try to get myself in those spots. Stir up trouble now, for the know, sake of it. I would like to contend that I didn't lose my house in Colorado just to no, be a martyr. No, <laughs> I really enjoyed no. being there, and I, I really wanted to stay as long as I could. Right. You know, so I mean, I, but, but the, so. Yeah, that the, was an ethical choice but, that we had to make and, and move forward with, right? We make myths, and, and the stories we tell, we also, like, can do legendary things. I mean, I think that's important. I think sometimes every once in a while, not focusing, this is definitely what Lao Tzu would say, not focusing on being great is what makes you great. Mm-hmm. So being the person who, at the end of it all, you know, if, if Augie has, a, say, a three kids and they're remembering him at, uh, at, at a funeral, what they're probably not going to be as interested in is your big professional feats. No. <laughs> like, there, like there could be something that you did that was under the radar that you did over over. Well, the real, the real heroic things that you can most of the time actually accomplish are not going to be things that people will uh, give you uh, honors for. Yeah. Right. Except, as Lao Tzu says, at the end of it, then we celebrate. Well, you, 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 will, you will remember yeah, but you don't do it often. For that. Yeah. But he was, he, what Lao Tzu says is the stuff that people actually remember is like ultimately, oh man, that person. And it's usually they don't tell you when you're alive. You know, it could be an artist or something. It's the great, the people who are trying to be a great artist. But for anybody that you helped benefit, they know that. That's way more important than than their heart, right? Right. If you can help one person, if you can be a hero for one person, then uh, that is probably the best chance you're going to get at being a hero in life. And you're going to, you're going to neglect that opportunity and many more, perhaps if you're always looking for the destiny. Yeah, and you had you had yeah. mentioned something very similar to this uh, in you wrote a little piece in in Dad's book, Sexy, <laughs> about your fiance now, mm-hmm. Sydney. Right? That this is true. I said, buddy, you're. I mean, w- she's been in our family for like years. Mm-hmm. Just turned twenty one. Like you know, like we, of course she's part of the family. So this is this is a like years ago that you mm-hmm. wrote this, and I said, you know, you guys are pretty serious. Like we're. She's part of the family now. What, what on earth? Like, aren't you supposed to go and see? Aren't there other fish in the sea? And you said, Dad, that's not, that's not really what you've been talking about in the book here. You know, like this isn't it. But you, you had a nice way of putting it. I don't remember exactly how I put it, but I remember the sentiment. You said, if there's only one great thing I did in my life, and if it was that I was the one person in her life that didn't leave her behind. That was stable for her. Yeah. Like, if that was the one thing I did, that would be enough. And that, like, boom. That was... I. I was enlightened at that point. I mean, that was that moment where I realized right. what you're saying now is what you said then intuitively. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> and if I had a certain idea in mind that I was going to go somewhere and do this great thing right. and I had a career path in mind that I was just dead set on, and if you weren't coming on board this train, then like yep. I don't have room Sleep, for you. baby. Yep. If I, if I would have had something like that, driving my motivations at the time, I probably wouldn't have access to such a great relationship that has actually been able to carry on through the years. Yeah. You're, and you're shutting the doors for yourself. And she has brought so much to our lives Indeed. so that, and by the way, she was most of the time on the old Virtue and the Wasteland show, her voice was on there introducing mm-hmm. it. But we, we 
we couldn't imagine the world without Sydney. You know, one of the great blessings of our lives was to be able to have this new person come in our family. Yeah, have a, the daughter that we never had. Yeah, and and once again, if Augie had been too caring, too too concerned about his ego, he probably would have had a failed career at something silly that he doesn't care about now. And now he's just kind of bummed about it. Now you've you found things that you love, like graphic design mm-hmm. and so forth. Please check them out at Frogstein. How, how do you how do you get to um, to your Instagram page? It's Frogstein. F R A U G S T E I N. Say it again. F R A U G S T E I N. Augie was the creator of the Protect Your Noggin uh, logo, podcast that logo. True. That's right. And uh, there's a whole myth developing around whatever the heck that, that, thing, <laughs> that thing is about. So, uh, also interestingly enough, I would never have gotten into graphic design if I wasn't letting myself be open to the possibilities around me and not yeah. if I was uh, too sure of. Your destiny, a, a destiny. Then yeah. I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't have had almost the courage to say. Um, I very much enjoy studying history, but I also will be open to other pursuits in my life as well. This is what we call surfing the Dow. Well, and no that, way going with the flow. Yeah, and that all came about because you didn't want to end up graduating in December. You figured you could. Yeah, I just wanted to. I wanted to uh, graduate be a full-time in May. Student for one more semester, so I added a minor. And there you go. That's kind of the thing that really may be, maybe. It was very incidental, and if nothing else, it has enriched my life in many ways. So uh, for that, I have to be grateful, right? Yeah, because one of the things that you've taught me is to have some kind of art. That's why I started getting into poetry, because I I can't draw the way you can draw. I just need something to channel my mind, and I want to write poems that are very short, because I'm too long-winded. So it forces me to constrain myself to find some peace, to get focused. You do this, you get into your zone, you put your headphones on, your sketch pad is out. And I think that's really a really important meditative practice. I, I wish you the, the, the best of fortune to have a, have a son like Augie. <laughs> we have right been now. blessed beyond really measure. Uh, and it's going to be hard to see you uh, go off into the, into the sunset, but also be delightful because uh, that's, that's part of it. You can't, can't kind of hang on to things. But the legacies that we, that we leave, these are the things that are eternal in this world. Uh, or at least very long-lasting. These are the these are the impactful things, the things that people notice. So thank you so much, Audrey. Yeah, thank you. It's been really fun to have you join us, yeah, <laughs> friends. Here's the here's the here's the main thing, though. We want you to make sure you know that if you are stuck in a situation with a bad relationship or uh, a bad religion, um, and the story that you tell yourself is one that was foisted upon you, right? Like there's a myth about who you are that's constraining. You can shake that off and, and make a new myth. Re, retell that story. Revise that story. One of the other things you can do if you've been, uh, been through some trauma or been through something that's been very painful, you can't go back in time and change that. Not even the omnipotent deity can go back in time and change that past. What you can do is start to re-narrate it. You can tell the story and you can put it into a new story that is not yet finished. I named Augie after St. Augustine. Sorry for the big, long-winded name, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but Augustine's book, The Confessions, ends with the word opened. So he ends, you know, he closes the book with the word open because if you think that whatever the story has been up to this point is the end of the story, for good or for bad, that's a real bummer. What you want to be able to understand is the freedom and the, and the liberation that you've got right in front of you and the love and the wonder that is right here right now. So after the break, we're going to share with you an interview that we did in uh, Orlando. Wayne Boyd has um, a book 
that is now out and it's available. It's, uh, it's the way in which he is talking about his life, sometimes tough things that happened in his life, and he describes them as miracles. Mm-hmm. He saw it as a way that God was sort of having a hand in his life and directing him along the way. Um, that he wouldn't have, you know, he, he, as he sees the whole big picture and he puts it all together and he sees that his life was, it had all of these significant miracles and all these things at the time that seemed little, mm. little things turned into a whole bigger story for him. And you might think, oh, that's silly, you know, miracles, or you might also not like the idea of, of, a, of a God that is, uh, f- like, controlling fate or, or tinkering in a very uh, active way. That's not what he's talking about. You're going to have to listen to the, to the interview. What he's talking about is something, I think, much more helpful for all of us, and that is a way that we can, again, narrate our past, see the connection, see the beauty, see the gift that we've got, also be able to learn how to be thankful for things that might have at the time uh, seemed like failures or difficulties that we could grow from and learn from. That you realize sometimes we're the most instrumental things in putting you in a new direction in life that you found far more meaningful than what you you know might have done had you been stuck <laughs> doing you know that, that type of thing mm-hmm. people do this all the time like when you have when you're forced to recreate yourself a uh, second career type of thing or whatever there's a lot of times where people find that you actually become grateful for losing their first career because it allowed them to then explore what the next phase of their life was going to be and enjoy that yep all right so we'll talk about that after the break the music from the break is from our dear mana nikchu mana if you're listening we uh, wish you a happy yalda night coming up that is the celebration in the Persian tradition of the longest night of the year. We'll be right back. <laughs> Here in Orlando, Florida, with Wayne, and Wayne has just written a book called The Twentieth Miracle. And before we get into where your life ended up and where you are now, 
what on earth is this business about these miracles and how this plays into your spiritual biography? The reason I call it the 20th miracle is because that was the miracle that made me look back and go, wow, I've normalized miracles. I've had miracles in my whole life. I got that sitting in the, in the pew listening to our pastor preach about miracles, and I thought, I need to, I need to relook my life. And so as I did that, I realized how God had intervened all through my life in so many miraculous ways. But one of my favorite uh, miracles was a set of miracles. I, was in, I, was, uh, I wanted to go to seminary, and I actually went to seminary, and I hated it. Mm-hmm. I visited some classes. I had a friend who said, I've got a place for you to stay, a job for you, da 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 and he didn't have anything for me, and so I was stuck because I had driven all the way from Tennessee, which is all the way to Texas, to Fort Worth, Texas. And so while I was there, I didn't want anything to do. I hated the class. I hated the people there. They did, I didn't fit in with them, and so I didn't want to go back. So I got a job, and I started working, and that's where I met my beautiful wife. And uh, that's a miracle. Can I share that miracle? Oh, yeah. Please. You're in Fort Worth, Texas. So I, I have a bad history of dating. I am not a good boyfriend, and I never could. I, I could fall in love really quickly, and I could fall out of love really quickly. And so I thought my wiring was broken, and there's something wrong with me. And I was getting frustrated because I was up into my, my early 20s and, and never into a, even though I had been like unofficially engaged three times, I just thought I couldn't, I couldn't find the right person. So I prayed to God, and back then I was very conservative, and I, I, I had a prayer journal, and I prayed to God, please help me find a girl that I can stay in love with, because I'm tired of this. I'm tired of hurting people. <laughs> and uh, I had a dream that night, and the very next day when I went to work, I saw my future wife, the very girl in my dreams, and I was so intimidated by her that it took me forever to ask her out. But even after, and I, and I didn't, but even after that occasion, I was working for a, a gentleman who I tutored his kids, and, and one day he just gave me his credit card and his maid and the kids, and we took off to Colorado for a vacation. And Sharon just happened to be at that same resort up in Colorado. And finally, when I did have the courage to ask her out, it was the day before I was going to Israel on archaeological dig, so we went on that first date, and uh, I... I don't know. I think that's pretty sexy, though. Like, all of a sudden, you're going to go to Israel on an archa- archaeological <laughs> Hey, baby. Like... I'd love to go out for more soda pop and ice cream, but I've got things to do. I'm going to the Holy Land. Yeah. There's going to be some potential death involved. So, I mean, this is, this is a weird timing. It was. And what's more interesting is when I asked her out, I had long blonde hair, straight hair, <laughs> And I decided to get a perm because my hair was very thin and oily, and I knew I was going to be roughing it. So when, and I didn't know anything about perms, but when I showed up at the door, I didn't look like me. I looked very, very different. That could be, that could be terrifying. Yeah, it can be. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, she continued to go out with me, even though I told her my car was broken and we had to use her car. But anyway, it worked out. Your car out. was broken and you had a perm. And then I was gone for, uh, for about four months on a dig. So uh, 
anyway, it worked out that we eventually got married, and, and I'm more madly in love with her tomorrow than I am today, and, and, and that today more than yesterday. And that, so that's, that was a beautiful blessing. When you had mentioned that there was like a, a blessing in your life, or then you mentioned you have this book, The 20th Miracle, I think what it is is sort of there's these ways that you see God interacting in your life that maybe at a certain time you might have labeled as something different than what you came to see Even it. something bad. Right, something bad. And, and so there's a time at which Jeff would label the year 1987 as the worst year of his life, but then that was... 1986. Sorry, 86. <laughs> um, but then it became where he discovered his calling and what he was supposed to do for the rest of his life. And so there was a miracle there in that. And I think you have seen several of these in your life where you thought your life was kind of going in one direction, but then you kind of, you know, found that you were led or that, like a different chapter title you might put to it, a different heading that you would put to some of these trials that you've had in life or life experiences. God's just a little bit cruel because (laughs) he puts you through this and you would think you would learn that it's going to work out. Of course, it doesn't always work out. But in my case, it just always worked out. And so you would think I would have the confidence when these events do occur in my life. Side note, the, the fireworks from, from uh, Disney World are going off right now. Reminds me of Irvine. When you were, when you were uh, deployed... How often are you hearing explosions? Yeah. All through the night. It's just constant. Yeah. I mean, did, did you ever, I mean, how did you learn to Is to it ever normalized? Or? I've never been afraid in combat, mm-hmm. even though I don't have a weapon. And even though these are missiles being fired at me that I can't, no one can stop other than the Patriot missiles. It's not like, a, not like an enemy combatant coming at you. It's nothing you can do about it. You just hope that it doesn't hit. Oh, man. So that was, uh, that was pretty hard. I was never afraid of dying. I was always afraid of somebody else raising my children. So you mentioned you're never afraid, you're never afraid of dying. Where, where do you find that, that peace? I've always been the person who never... I've almost been stoic my whole life. I don't have a lot of emotion uh, I remember spinning in a car with my youngest son when we were going to his uh, bachelor's party in the rain in a Jeep on a highway, eight-lane highway, and the Jeep was just spinning. And we're just like, neither one, he's like me. We're not saying anything. Mm. And then we run into a tree, and I said, oh, crap. Mm. And that was it. Mm. So I don't, have a lot of, I, I don't have a lot of emotions. I never have. I, I, I come from a German... My mother's from a German background, and I don't think that she had very much emotions either. So. It's, it's amazing because in reading your book, you're stuck in a cave uh, at the bottom of a pit. One of the like, most terrifying things that anybody could dream. You are near lightning that strikes. You are hassled by superior officers. You are almost uh, dying of thirst in the middle of the desert in the Holy Land. I mean, you are constantly, as you, as you tell the story of your life, I'm reading this and thinking, there's a way that I could say, here's a cursed gentleman, right? Here's a gentleman that is dealing with so many negative things. And you could have let that 
happened to you. But instead, the way you tell your life story is a series of these miracles. So if we can go back to you know, the miracle of, of finding love, you, you, you admit that you were kind of a, a bummer of a boyfriend f- for a while. I was. <laughs> do you have any idea why? Is that, does that have anything to do with your you know, sense of, of uh, letting out your emotions? Or I mean, what, what on earth led you to... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> therapist, I'm not sure how to answer that. I, I just, I was, ne- I, I was a slow mature. I was, I was always less mature than my peers, most of my peers. Um, I was terrified of beautiful girls. Um, and they are, they are intimidating. And I did not have the best uh, confidence in myself because I had a severe case of acne, which now I know was not ac- allergy, allergy to skin mites. And so they which treat... everybody has. Mm-hmm. But no, not, they don't have the allergy. No, but they have skin mites. Everybody has skin mites, right. yeah. Yeah, I'm not dirty. I'm a clean guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm clean. I, ba- I bathe every day. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, and then I had a big space between my teeth, and then one of my teeth was chipped at an angle. So, just n- and you mentioned that your parents were so hardworking that you didn't want to take from their money to help fix your teeth. Right. I always was conscious. I was the kid that hated Christmas because I didn't want anybody to buy me presents. Mm. And, uh, and and by the way, I will say I I know now more than ever that I had the best parents ever. That I do have that. I was loved. One of the things we talked about in our previous episode was that unconditional love can help give intrinsic motivation and values. There's a, a goodness there. there. There's something that you have been gifted with that goes above um, just what you might have been taught or what you're being told from superiors, that somehow you've internalized some pretty strong values. It's unconditional love from his parents, and uh, which gives you confidence in who you are. So what drove you to be an army chaplain? I had gone to a conservative seminary. I was Southern Baptist, and I had pastored in a country church because initially, since Sharon had been married before, we were tainted, and so nobody wanted to hire us. Mm. So we got hired by a very small church. And it was, it was a positive and negative experience at the same time because it was just very frustrating. And I was starting to get very frustrated with my theological education. And then we just had to get away from that church. And so we went to another church in Virginia. And there the same thing happened again. And I said, I've got to do something else with my life. This is, I'm not built to be a pastor. I'm just not. And so uh, I had the opportunity to enter into the military and I was thinking of myself as being a missionary to the military members. So I was not there. I'm, not, I, I'm against almost every war. I can't, every war that I've been, I was totally against. I thought it was very, very poor reasons why we went into those, those wars. But I love the soldier. The soldier is amazing. They're, they're like so dedicated. They think they're serving their country to the fullest of their ability. They're sacrificing um, so much. They're spending time away from their family. And so I saw my job as a, as a missionary, not as a supporter of war. 
And I've always been pretty vocal about my stance against war. But to the extent you're vocal, how often does that come up in your dealings with soldiers? I wish I knew then what I know now. I would have been a much better chaplain. I wish I'd escaped out of conservatism, out of fundamentalism. That's who I was, though. I was raised in a very conservative church. I listened to Rush Limbaugh. God, please forgive me. I was that person, and I was that during my journey. But the good thing about the military is all of a sudden now I'm no longer in the Bible Belt, but I'm all over the world, and I'm with people of different faiths, and I'm having conversations, theological conversations, with people that are, that are uh, different from mine, and I'm loving it because I thrive on change. I thrive. I, I love change. I, I, every job I've ever gone to, I try to change. How can we make it better? Mm-hmm. And same with my theology. How can I make it better? And so the Army was perfect for me because I got to have those... I mean, I had wonderful dialogues with the Catholic priest. I would have never had a dialogue with a Catholic priest if I'd stayed in the pastorate. And I had wonderful dialogues with Muslim imams and, and just get to travel all over the world and hear all these perspectives. And then I started having a thirst to read and, and learn more. And then I, I realized that I had to leave. Actually, the thing that drove me to leave the Southern Baptist Church is when they went against Mickey Mouse, and that's just wrong. <laughs> when, when they declared Disney World as, as wrong, I, uh, that was the final straw. What, <laughs> what, what, what did you identify with, with the fundamentalist church? Or, um, I just, like, that's the way I was raised. I didn't know anything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I, when I went to a very conservative... Actually, I had one professor who... Uh, that was the reason I transferred to another seminary out in California because he transferred out there, and I followed him, and he was the real deal. And uh, we, he pretty much adopted our family. We loved him. Uh, and uh, sadly, when the conservatives, fundamentalists, took over the denomination, they fired him and took away his tenure, mm. uh, which is just so cruel. He was also uh, Southern Baptist? He was Southern Baptist, but yeah. he was... Back then, we had liberals in the Southern Baptist Convention. Right, it was a broader yeah, and coalition. They were, but that went away. But so that was, a, you know, the, one of the big questions that Stacy and I had as we came to meet with you is that, that question, what was it that helped you to make that pretty big change in your theological disposition? And you, if I'm getting you correctly, I think part of it is just meeting people, meeting people from a broader set of backgrounds and you had to do this as you were traveling and working with like you said catholic priests and others is there anything else well i've always been a reader and i've i've always uh been thirsty for knowledge that that was because of a high school english teacher that a literature teacher that i had but it was a 20-year journey. It was not like overnight. It was, it was a hard journey to leave what you've been, I don't want to say brainwashed, but you've been... Brought up with. And uh, that's all you... Yeah. That's and, and, what you know and, in doctrine. And you go to your, your, your group's conventions and you hear you know, the same, the same pablum. So it was... Uh, I, I, my journey was kind of through... Francis Schaeffer was the first one to turn me on how... Politics and, and philosophy and the arts and religion are all connected, and, and I, I got interested in that. And uh, I had always been a fan of C.S. Lewis, and from there, it, we, we got a chance to be at a church in uh, Seattle where the pastor was, it was a Presbyterian church, but the pastor was uh, beyond Calvinism. I mean, he was, he, was, he was his own 
his own thought, and he really heavily influenced us. But my greatest change has been since I retired, and I've had time, because the military sucked the life out of mm-hmm. me. And uh, I didn't have time to really grow that fast. I've grown more. I retired in 2016. I have grown more exponentially. I read, I read at least, what, a book every two weeks, and sometimes reading two or three books at the same time, and I'm listening to lectures, and I'm listening to you, to your lecture series, and, and gained a lot from that. And uh, and I'm just I'm just like a sponge. I just I, well, and you, and you had mentioned in in your book about idols. You mentioned that there's the church, you said synagogue or temple, and the scriptures and the government, and that these were idols that you saw. How did you see those kind of or some of those examples of some of those things played out while while you were a chaplain? I think I see the Bible more as an idol than than the. It's those organizations and how they use the Bible, and they've deified the Bible, and they've made it... Like, I, I, I put out an F.F. F. Bruce quote the other day, and I'm not quoting it exactly, but it's something like, Paul would turn over in his grave if he knew that his letters had become Torah. Because I, I was into the heavily into apologetics, how can I defend the Bible? And like, i got to take care of God and defend God. And when I finally got past that, God doesn't need defending. <laughs> and the Bible was written by men, inspired, yes, but but not infallible, inerrant. And so when I crossed that bridge, then it was just wide open uh, to get past the deification of the Bible. A wonderful book. We read it together every day. We study it. I love it. Uh, We study the theologians. So if I... I would almost envision it as like chains that was keeping you to a certain understanding of it and that you were released from that and then like you mentioned, it was wide open. Is that... Yeah, I mean, my favorite song is uh, Free Bird, because, (laughs) and that's not about a theological freedom, but for me it was, and I hate that this current video of Trump killing everybody uh, used Free Bird as a song, and so now I'm like, conflicted, can I still use this song? You can still have Free Bird. He doesn't get to steal Free Bird. The, The book, you list all these 20 miracles, and there are these places where you see God at work. So how do you define miracle? Like, what, what does it mean for it to be a miracle in your life? Some are more subtle. Some are more overt. Uh, like when I was doing my Jonah thing, when I said I don't want to be in the seminary, I said I'm going to get in my car. And this is before cell phones, so my parents didn't know. I mean, they knew I was out west. But I was, uh, actually, I was in Fort Worth, and I got this call, this call saying, do you want to come work at this camp in New Mexico? And I, don't, I never applied for that, never had anything to do with that. It just happened. I don't call that a miracle, but it was a, the start of some. And so I went to that camp, and I, I served there. And then uh, as I was going there, I think I had one of my most uh, apparent miracles. As I was driving, I had to, the job. They came and interviewed me, and, I, and they said I had it, but I had to drive from Fort Worth to Santa Fe, New Mexico in one day. And I'm not the best driver, and I fall asleep when I drive, and i got to have music. And so I had everything I owned in my little Toyota Celica, and I'm driving to New Mexico, and i got my radio on, and I'm listening, and as long as I have music, I'm okay, and I'm listening to the rock music. And I get to the border of New Mexico and Texas, and all there is is country music. And I've already told you I'd rather listen to nothing than country music. (laughs) And so I had a cassette player in my car, and it had never worked, ever. It had never... It had never worked since I bought it. And I had cassettes that I carried with me, and I had a little 
uh, stereo player that I would put them in, and, and I had headphones. I didn't have speakers. I just had headphones. But, but I said, you know, God, I need to get to this place, and I'm falling asleep, and I've got to be there, and I need you to heal my tape player. And I don't think that's ever happened before. I, I think don't think anyone's yeah. prayed that before. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I grab, it's midnight, it's dark, and I reach into my case, and I pull a cassette out that I don't know what it is, and I stick it in, and it starts to play. And it's the Imperials, which is a gospel group that I really liked at the time. And as soon, as soon as I put it in, the Imperials bus on this desolate road where I had passed hardly anybody passes me going the other way. And I'm like, this is a miracle. Mm-hmm. What it also did is it put me at such a euphoric attitude of praise that I was in Santa Fe before I knew it. Mm-hmm. And then when I got there, it never worked again. Uh, <laughs> it, it's just, that's just mind-boggling to me. And so you, you can coincidence that all day long, but that, to me that was a direct miracle that God was confirming my my Jonah run and then during that Jonah run that's when I had the struck by lightning in the Grand Canyon attacked by the bear and, and alright so you need to back up a little bit <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, struck wait, by wait, lightning wait, 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 before we get too far first of all the Imperials thing that's a bona fide weirdness yeah. miracle synchronicity something interesting side note I just want to say to the dear listener uh, Rust Half you've seen Rust Half Rust Half is part of the Imperials he had a uh, uh, he had a move in the 90s in contemporary Christian music. 1964 was when the Imperials got started in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. I had no idea they went that far back. Rick Evans, Paul Smith, Dave Will, Armin Morales is the is the main lineup. Anyway, uh, but now you'd say, well, that's something. God's intervening here in this in this little moment here. But you and just you say, casually mentioned about yep. being attacked by a bear. Maybe let's get to that one. Well, first was the lightning. Okay, so, the lightning, lightning in the Grand Canyon, correct? So I'm on my own. The sweet voice you're hearing is Sharon. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and this is Wayne's wife, in case anybody is. <laughs> the love of my life. She's, she's chiming in here and there, and I just want to make sure we did an introduction. So I'd stopped when I got tired, and I had, I had uh, I think I had like maybe $100 at the most. And... Uh, and so I'm working my way all by myself. Anyway, I get to the Grand Canyon. I say, I want to go to the Grand Canyon. And so I, I look up. It's a perfectly fine day. Of course, to excuse me, you know, we don't have cell phones. and We can't check the weather. But when I get down to the bottom of the... And this is like a 17-mile trek. When I get down to the bottom of the trail, the sky is black. I didn't pay attention to the fact that everybody was going the opposite direction. And I was the only one going down. And the problem about going down is you have to go back up for the final part of the journey. So I'm down there at the very bottom. The sky is black. It's like a horrible storm. The, the river looks like an ocean. And uh, I'm looking over the handrail and going, well, wow, this is really beautiful. <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> and then a big lightning bolt comes, and it strikes the bar that I'm holding on to. It doesn't strike me directly, but it knocks me flat on my back, and it cinches the hair on my arms. Wow. And since then, I know every time I go f- to the doctor, I get an EKG, they tell me I've had a heart attack, and I've never had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking, then I must have had a heart attack. That's the only time in my life they could have been a heart attack. Right. And so I'm by myself. I'm at the bottom of the hill. It's dark. It is, it's pitch black. There's nobody else around. The, the trail is, is a, uh, like a snake. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I just go straight up. I just cut through. I just. <laughs> we've, yeah. we've been there. It's and a rough, I know it's, a rough it's like business. that's a really it's a rough very incline. Steep climb. And we've been there when it was going to rain. And so Terrifying. we saw people running the other, you know, kind of like yeah. going the other direction. We're like, okay, I guess we better turn around and strange, start going up. Uh, so we weren't strange hit by business, lightning. though, is that the Native Americans always said that if you got some kind of uh, run-in with lightning that made you a shaman, a shaman yeah ah, like you are now a hey. spiritual leader <laughs> add that to my resume and that's like you, you put on the resume for the so military so you've been picked <laughs> so I did not see that as a miracle at the time <laughs> that's reflecting back I see that as as uh, because followed that again I'm running away God I don't want to go to seminary I don't want to be a preacher I don't want to be a minister those people are weird and, and so I go to Yosemite. I'm at Yosemite. This whole time, I'm stopping at people's, actually, ex-girlfriends and, and mm-hmm. other people I know, and staying and getting a job till I have enough money to go to the next stop. So it's, 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 it's that kind of a journey. But by the time I got to Yosemite, I drove my car to a campsite, except that you have to walk a mile to get to the campsite. And when I get there, I'm the only one there. And so uh, I'm okay with that. I, I was a Boy Scout. I'm okay with that. But eventually another guy comes, and he has a tent, and he's, he tells me, you know, we talk a while, and he says, hey, if it starts to rain, well, you can get in the tent with me. You know, you're sleeping in a, uh, just a... Sleeping bag. Sleeping bag by itself. Right. Out, out in the open. Right. I mean, that's how I would sleep on the road. I only stayed in a hotel one time, and that was in Vegas. So I pull off the road and just sleep by the side of the road. Hmm. But at this time, I was at the campsite, and, and so sure enough, in the middle of the night, it starts to rain. And so I go over to the guy and I say, hey, you know, I woke him up. Can I come in? He says, sure, come on in. And so I'm in there and we're asleep and everything's fine. All of a sudden I feel this bear just clawing at me through the tent. And wake, he wakes me up and I'm, I'm, I'm screaming. I'm saying, there's, there's a bear. And uh, my... That's a, that's a <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. That's like one of my worst nightmares. Actually, I wasn't screaming. He was screaming. That's a bear. Oh, and he man. said, do you have food in here? I said, I have... A can of chili that hadn't been opened. Can can they smell through? I was thinking they can't smell through a can because I had hoisted my other food up on the bear pole. Yeah. But uh, I was just thinking again. I didn't see that as a miracle. But afterwards, I thought, you know, if I hadn't, if that guy hadn't come out there with his tent and offered it to me, I would have been just laying out in the open. This mm. bear would not have oh, yeah. probably would not have wanted to hurt me. Right. But. But, wouldn't have but would have right. stopping you. Uh, so when we uh, woke up the next morning, he had tore into all. I threw all my stuff out. <laughs> he tore into uh, all the ch- cans of chili and ate that. He, she, I shouldn't. And uh, <laughs> and then ate my toothpaste. <laughs> it. God is intervening in my life. God is still. He's walking with me. He knows. He knows I'm seeking him. I might be running, but I'm running and not away from him. I'm running to try to find more of him than what I have been presented in this seminary. Huh. And you mentioned in your, in your book that um, sort of Jesus helped you in, interpret the Bible. Jesus' message is just so gorgeous, and I'm so sorry that the church is just... I, I read the Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ. I look more at his life examples and who he reached out to. He went to the ostracized, the marginalized. He went to the people that nobody else would have anything to do with. And he greeted them with love, and nobody had ever done that. I see him as somebody, I look at how Hollywood mocks the church, and rightly so, but I don't think I've ever seen anybody mock Jesus Christ. He was all about selflessness. 
He was all about love. He was all about compassion. Those who stood, those who I would call oppressors, especially the, the religious experts of the day, he told them off. Mm-hmm. He stood in their face and, and told them off, knowing that that would be the end of his life. He, he marched voluntarily into his own murder mm-hmm. uh, by confronting those people. But he was the one who touched the leper. He's the one who held... Who, who drank the water from the, the lady it, that, that no one else would ever ever have done. He's, he's the one who uh, wanted the children to come love on him. How can you not love that, that Jesus? But how can you not love the church? Because they've caused wars. They've killed each other. They've turned, they've, they've turned, again, they've worshipped the Bible to the point where they can use the Bible to defend anything, whether it be slavery in America, colonization, uh, Jim Crow, uh, and, and Hitler, the, the church backed Hitler, mm-hmm. uh, using the Bible, it's just, it's just crazy. Just look at what Jesus did and do that. And, and then I always say, he made it so easy for us. Love God and love everybody else. You don't even have to memorize 50 verses. Mm-hmm. You don't have to know the four spiritual laws. All you got to do is just love people, and, and it's just crazy. And then I, when I finally realized that the Old Testament is not God's history of Israel, it's Israel's history of Israel. And they got it wrong. They misunderstood. That's why Jesus had to come correct, and, and the Sermon on the Mount was the, 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 re, the deconstruction of the, the, the Ten Commandments. And yeah. it's just... You've heard it said. Now let me tell you the deep teaching here. Yeah. Right. Well, I was I was just wondering then. Did you find any um, opposition to that? How did the men that you were that were under your care? How did how did they interpret the Bible? Or well, I wasn't where I wanted to be when I was with young soldiers. Mostly, I I, I came to this this uh, revelation revelation later on in my career. But I always loved, the soldiers always knew, knew I loved them. They mm-hmm. always knew that. And that's the most important thing you can do. And so I was there with them. Uh, when we did the road marches, I was there with them. When we're all sweaty and nasty, I'm there with them. I was very, very, very connected to my soldiers, and I loved them. And, and then when I went to war with them, and then I saw how this destroys their soul. I had one soldier who told me, he says, Chaplain, I'm just tired of picking the brains of my buddy out of the seat next to me. Yeah. I've, lost, I've lost my soul. Mm. And so I hate, again, I see these as wars that were unnecessary, and I hate what these young men and women have to deal with. And now I think the, the rate is 22 veterans kill themselves every day. Oh, yeah. uh, when we go to war, we're fighting ourselves. We're fighting our own people. We're fighting our own generation our young generation, and, and so I just fell in love with their passion, and uh, I fell in love with the enlisted more than the officer corps, although I respected the officer corps, but a lot of the people that I was working with were people that came from, in fact, I did a lot of marriage counseling. I did a lot of marriage counseling, and only one time did I counsel a soldier who had a mother and father who were still together and loved him. Mm. Only one time. That's who I'm dealing with. People from Amongst abusive the enlisted soldiers. Yes. Yeah. What do they find attractive to signing up for? Well, income for one thing, and they, and they, a lot of them come from really 
uh, areas where there's not much opportunity for that. So they get in, and then there's there's the carrot. You know, you can get a free college. Uh, you do this, this. But what the Army is really good at is growing you into having confidence in yourself, teaching you how to be a leader. Mm-hmm. And you see them grow from this immature high school student uh, into... Uh, then you see them rise up to the ranks of sergeant major and where they have this... Uh, people don't realize how how good the education system is in the military and the fact that we're, again, working with a diverse environment. So we're not colonized into our, the people that look and smell and taste like us. I shouldn't say taste. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and so you have to learn to love that person who's a different color, a different religion. And so soldiers will tell you when they're downrange, they're not fighting for the flag. They're not fighting for the country. They're not fighting for the president. They're fighting for the guy on the left and on the right mm. because they've fallen in love. That's their brother or sister mm-hmm. at arms. And that's who uh, they go downrange. And, and it's just the amount of love that they have uh, for each other and the compassion. And then you see how that just rips their soul apart mm-hmm. when they've lost so many of the people that they've Mm-hmm. They fall in love with it. I, I had a, a sergeant major who, who was speaking to an audience, and he said, I love my soldiers more than my wife. Mm-hmm. And she's sitting in the audience. Mm-hmm. But, but they're hanging out all the time. They're going through so much. Well, and they have each other's back. I mean, Well, they're dying. Yeah. Yeah. I went to one memorial service in Iraq where there had been an IED, and a soldier had been killed. And so the commander got in the vehicle to run to the site, and then there was another ID, and the commander died. And so they're having a moral service, and the moral service was amazing. It lasted for like an hour. But then after it's over, the soldiers stayed in formation. They wouldn't leave. They were showing honor to their commander and to their fallen comrade. And it was just like heartbreak. And then I ate in their dining facility, and all around the walls was a picture of all the soldiers that have died in that area. And it's just, uh, these are amazing young men and women, and they're... Uh, they deserve so, such better pay and uh, so much more respect. So yeah, I, I just loved the soldier. You mentioned the difference in the book between PTSD and something else. Moral more, injury. Moral injury. Yeah. Could you explain the difference and, and how you, as a chaplain, would deal with moral injury? So uh, there's a lot of literature written on it, so I won't try to pretend to be an expert but my understanding of moral injury is it has the same symptoms of PTSD, but it, PTSD is more of a fear-based injury, and moral injury is more of a love-based injury. Like, I'm injured because I saw my best friend die right in front of me, or I should have gone, that should have been me, not, or that was my soldier, or that was, because mm-hmm. we become a family. We, we play together. I mean, the Army, I want to speak to the Army. We work really hard. I was gone all the time. I was training all the time. I, I probably spent about eight total years away from my family, uh, all the deployments and all the, the, the training exercises. So you, you really become a family. And so it's as hard as losing a family member. Mm. And especially when we started having all the suicides, and that's even that's somebody that has no hope. Mm. They have no hope for life. They have no hope, and it's just, it's just so sad. And these are just such innocent young men and women who are just are, are so uh, impressive. So, from what you've learned, like why why do you think there's such a high suicide rate? 
I personally, I was actually involved heavily in the suicide. Uh, I, I actually got to be part of the team. In fact, I led the team that developed the suicide prevention training for the entire Army, and it's being used by the federal marshals, and it's being used by uh, other services. Japanese. Yeah, we got to introduce it to the Japanese Ground Defense Forces. Got to go out there and do that, and so I and I've been on some epidemiological consults where we've gone in and looked at all the records and peered through them, and I personally saw a theme that ran throughout where there there was uh, what what I it's kind of like uh, oh what's the movie where the guy falls in love with his rifle the Marine. Uh, uh, and he ends up killing... Full Metal Jack. Full Metal Jack, in, yeah. So uh, what they did to him is they not only turned against him because, of his, because they deemed what he was doing was wrong, they turned his peers against him. Mm-hmm. And so I saw that a lot. So when you get a leader, and it could be the next level, it could be just another NCO, it could be a general officer, it could be... But in all the records I went through, I saw a toxic leader who all of a sudden, if you're trying to find something wrong with somebody, you're going to find it. Mm. You know, if you're seeking it out and searching it, and if you become that person where they're not going to notice anything good I do, they're just going to, they lose hope, especially if their peers turn on them. Mm. And if you're the kind of leader who makes the peer, if you punish the peers because of your sins or your mm. your actions it's a better word uh they lose hope and uh what do you think why do you think some of the leaders kind of go that route like what where does that toxicity come from some of it comes from the fact that they're not ready to be leaders yet and and the situation we're put into we we have been in war forever Mm. and and we're asking these young men right out of high school to go into war they're brilliant as they know how to use all these very computer generated equipment. I mean, they're brilliant technologically. They know so much. They, uh, in fact, I had a group of uh, warrant officers when I was at, at one assignment that I got to volunteer for Habitat for Humanity, and the, and the people there were like, you just build a house. <laughs> you guys, y'all know how to do everything. They were just amazing, the talent they had. You had mentioned that sometimes some of the hardest people that you had to come across were other chaplains oh, yeah. or your superiors, and they seemed to be almost acting against you. Often, yeah, I I would rather work for the meanest, toughest infantry officer in the army than another chaplain. And that's so sad. I just I, uh, and not every not chaplain always. I worked for was was bad, but I it it's it's again it's that level where they think they've got God on they figured God out, and if you go outside of their uh, parameters, then you're wrong. Mm. I mean, I had one chaplain and his deputy who would show up at my medical appointments hoping I wasn't there just so they could write something up on me, where they would have, they had somebody from D.C. come down and audit, because I was the bookkeeper guy, hoping they'd find something, and there was nothing there. So it's, I sort of, I had that feeling of, and they even attacked my wife, and everybody loves my wife. She's like <laughs> the most empathic, uh, just amazing human being, and they even attacked her uh, trying to get at me. And it was just this awful time when, and and these were, I will say, conservative Christian chaplains. Were they upset that you were that you were not staying in line theologically? Were you just at a dispositional level? Were what, they jealous? What, what did they have against or, you? Yeah, what was well, it? Well, in this case, it was we had a young black Hispanic chaplain who was Presbyterian, and he wanted to have a liturgical service. 
And so I sponsored him because they wanted everybody to go to their service. Numbers was everything. Mm. And so uh, eventually they closed his service down because they said, you're just not getting enough people to attend. And he had... And I was there with him. We had like 25, 30 attending. So it's Are you saying that chaplains kind of compete for servicemen and women yes. to make sure that they have an operation, otherwise they can get shut down? I had no idea that was part of it. They compete for other reasons. I think yeah. they, because it's that whole conservative mentality that I've got to fill the church. I've got to have the most baptisms. Right. I've got to have the most conversions. Uh, and then it's theologically, you're liturgical. You're so way off, you know. He even had our Catholic priest doing a Bible, uh, uh, a Wednesday night Bible study. <laughs> it, was, it was just, it was just crazy. And so, this uh, the young Black Hispanic chaplain filed a uh, equal op EEO complaint against this senior chaplain, and everybody ostracized him. So I became his friend, and I supported him. Oh. So by that, they accused me of instilling him. To file the complaint, and I said all along, "Hey, I'm a white male. I don't. I'm the perpetrator of all these things. Right. I don't. I don't think about things like that. And I know who, who, who wanted him to do that. But they were dead and set that I was the one who created the situation. Yeah. And so from then, that's when they started attacking. So it was more in this case. Now it is. It is more of a social kind of issue. You know, it's not directly theological. Later on, you have changes of opinions. Well, they're not, they're not against him because of his race right. or his ethnicity. They're right. against him because of his theology. Oh, I see. They don't want the liturgical service. Interesting. So that itself was not their flow, what it was, you know, non-denomination. Yeah, they felt like they were wasting money mm-hmm. keeping that service afloat. So, Sharon, what, when you think about <laughs> all, of these, uh, all of these fun stories, I mean, what's the hardest part about being a spouse to somebody who's a chaplain? Well, at that particular one, it was quite difficult. And is um, actually embarrassing at times. I mean, like when they farewelled us, there's a certain thing that they do every time they farewell somebody. But they made a point to make sure they didn't give me that kind of honor mm-hmm. in front of everybody. So there were those kind of things. But um, I knew the truth, and I didn't really... Whitewash it, whatever you know. I just didn't do that. I mean, uh, they told me I couldn't be friends with certain people, huh. and I said, "Well, I've known them longer than I've known you, you know." And I just, I just held my own really on that, which is not really like me. Sometimes I'm quiet, it's quiet most of the time. Mm-hmm. But, Sharon's um, a peacemaker. Um, I stood my grounds on that, and I just—it was a blessing to get out of there. Mm-hmm. I have to say. And there are there have been some times, but most of the time it's been really good. I, I'm not really one that's confrontational with people, even though he's had some some quite uh, you know quite uh, quite a lot of them really. Yeah, I'm persona non grata. I usually chapels. stay low, so you know. Did you did you know going in how how often <laughs> he'd be out of? No, out of <laughs> we didn't know anything. In fact, we didn't even know that when he went to the field that he didn't take a regular suitcase. We knew nothing. <laughs> you figure it out. So, yeah, we knew on. nothing, you know. But you know, you you I you know, you don't get angry about it. You just you just survive. What was? Is there a moment where you said, "Hey, this is actually kind of fun"? Was there? One spot where you thought I, I thought it was all fun, actually. Oh, good. I loved it. I loved meeting all the different people. 
I think when you stay like in your own denomination and you don't meet other people from other denominations, I think you miss out. Mm-hmm. I, th- I really think that the church is, should be with everybody. Everybody's different views. It's just, it's, it's a really kind of a blessing. Uh, different color scans. I mean, you don't see people like today, if you go to church, it's basically all white or all black. But in the military, it's mixed. You have Hispanics, you have everybody. And it, and you don't really see color. You see that. friends. You see fellow Christians. And, and you're and you're sometimes in the states, but you were in Germany at least. We, we, did oh, you yeah. live anywhere else? We were in Germany for three well, we traveled a lot on vacations and stuff, but uh, he was in Korea. Try. I went to visit a few times one time, I guess. Yeah, when we're, when I was in Korea she couldn't the family couldn't come. So yeah, I wasn't those, invited. Those, those are two one year tours where I'm by but, myself. I, I could have come to visit, but I didn't because the kids were in school. But, but you weren't living there. No. Mm-mm. And so one thing that I guess was kind of new to me, and, I, and maybe I'm reading it wrong or whatever, but as a chaplain, are you expected to honor sort of all faith traditions, or is yes. there a certain well tradition that you're supposed to be connected to? You're endorsed by one group. Okay. There are certain groups that can endorse you as a chaplain. But you are are either supposed to perform or provide. So if you can't provide because of your theological persuasion, then you go find someone who can. Especially, typically, it was for a priest because we are a shortage of priests. So, uh, but I had no problem. In fact, I even did a Catholic service out in the field because there was nobody else. I was the only one, and the Catholics they all came, and uh, there was no priest around, and so we just had a, had a meeting. Mm. And so I had no problem doing that, and I don't think they did either. What would you say is, is there something that stands out of being like the greatest gift or blessing of, of being a chaplain? Or, and you as a spouse, Sharon, like is there anything that stands out? Well, I think meeting people. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, especially if you're overseas. Overseas, you become a family. You know, more and so. you become a minority, which is cool. Right, <laughs> right. I um, love that. I think there's a relationship in those... Those relationships stay with you forever, really. Mm-hmm. And you usually stay in contact with uh, those people. And, and there's a, just a strong bond. I, 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 I loved it, actually. Uh, while we were in Germany, I actually got to take a volunteer group into Russia right after the wall fell down. And that was, the, mm-hmm. that was like an amazing experience. That's pretty wild. And that's a miracle all by yeah. itself because you had to sneak in Bibles. Mm. We snuck in Bibles, Russian and Bibles, and food and medicines. And uh, they didn't get checked. And I'm still yeah. Friends. All your suitcases, you said magically, just nothing was checked, and that you forwent even clothes and things like that, and we're well, kind of wearing froze. everything. It's, it's like what was the degrees there? It was like forty below. Mm. He didn't even take a. Coke. The Volga was frozen. The Volgan River, but it was such a magical experience. And I've, and I've always been in love with Russia. I don't know, mainly before the revolution, but even after, like. Uh, not Dostoevsky, but... Uh, Tolstoy. No, the other one. Uh, the guy who wrote about what it's like to live under Stalin. Mm-hmm. Oh, Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn, yeah. And even that, really. And then when I got to go to Russia and meet the people, they're the most loving. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. It was, like, amazing how sweet they are. And we had one great experience where we went to an orphanage. And this, this broke my heart. But we, brought, we went to an orphanage uh, with the Russian children, and, and there was... Uh, 
we brought candy, which they didn't ever experience. They mm-hmm. didn't get to have that. And so we gave it to all of them. And then one little girl, she was like four years old, she would not accept our candy. And, and the interpreter, I had an interpreter with us, and he said, she doesn't want to accept your gift until you accept her gift. And her gift was to sing a song to us. And it's like, oh, my gosh, I just melted. Mm-hmm. And if we had been there a little bit earlier, I could have taken her home. Sharon would have been fine with that. We could have taken her. Uh, but they don't get adopted. They get institutionalized. So I'm an opera nut. I love opera. I, I'm mesmerized by opera. So we got to go to the Bolshoi Theater and see Boris Gudinov, which is a four-hour opera with full regalia, military, everything. And I felt like I had been there like 15 minutes. It was just like, like I had a spiritual experience. It was a theological, spiritual mm. high from being in this opera, which I, I don't have the gift of music, but I have the gift of appreciating music. And then when we were on our way out, they uh, wanted to arrest us and accused us of stealing the opera glasses. And so... I, wait, wait, for, I, I want to pause real fast. I, I, I want you to keep flowing with this. It doesn't matter if it's the Ruskies, if it's, if it's other pastors, if it's the military. Pe- people sometimes get on your case, man. I guess. <laughs> I, mean, I guess. I mean, you just go into the opera. You appreciate the opera. Okay, so you end up in prison. How does this go now? So you're, you're accosted. I, I think, in hindsight, they just wanted us to give them money, which we didn't know. We uh, thought we were really sense. being accused. Right. But uh, they had to inventory all the glasses, and uh, eventually they let us go. <laughs> like, this guy's not paying. Uh, yeah. But it was... It's a good thing no one took some glasses for our souvenir. Well, who would steal opera? What, what, what other purpose <laughs> would, would they have? It's just... Just a souvenir. <laughs> souvenir. Uh. Y'all would have been in jail. So you're going into being a chaplain. You're already a pacifist. Like, how, like, how do you go about um, helping the soldiers that you're with when you know that they have to take these lives? So one of the things I would always do everywhere I went was I'd find an opportunity for them to do something good. It was usually an orphanage uh, because there's a lot of those overseas. Uh, when I was in this, I always try to find some kind of program where they can do good because they have to do bad to, to give them a feeling of, of I've done something to help somebody. And we even found this home in, in Korea, which again breaks my heart, but this was a, a community of disabled, mentally and physically disabled individuals who were like in a socialistic environment taking care of each other, uh, helping each other based on their disabilities. And they have nobody supporting them because for some reason in Korea, they're not real big on helping people with disabilities. And that doesn't make sense to me because it's such a Christian nation, but then maybe it does. So uh, we got to adopt them. And I got to bring my soldiers out there and we'd sing with them and play and feed them and, and hug them and hold them. And, and so I did that to help the people that were helping, but I did it more so to help my soldiers help the people that we're helping. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned doing bad. Did they, do you think they internalized it as doing bad? I think when you kill somebody, mm-hmm. unless you're a sociopath, that's going to haunt you for the rest of your life. Eventually you're going to realize, I killed a human being. I killed somebody's mother, father, something. So um, that's what the weight that know. they are carrying. And, that's what they uh, have to live with. And, then they all, and that's part of moral injury, which is also, you know, my battle buddy died. My, 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 my friend for life died. And so you, you. So it's sort of like, in a way, to when you mention then doing something good is doing something outside of themselves, something to help the life of another. Yes. And give back in some way. 
Um, and somehow I did that every place I went to, like in, in Hawaii, which is you know paradise, but uh, we have a boatload of homeless, and so we did the homeless ministry and the. The first time I did it, I had a hundred soldiers volunteer. And They're most, volunteering. Most chaplains don't do that. Okay. Well, and that's mm-hmm. the other thing too. They don't. Is that yeah. also you mentioned that often when you were doing some of these things, that other chaplains he wouldn't just participate, right? Do more. But the chaplain, the other chaplains wouldn't participate in some of these well, efforts that they did if they were under him. Yeah. <laughs> but they didn't do it voluntarily. And and do you have any guesses to why they wouldn't? Like why? Actually, further than that, a lot of the chapel members, I had very few chapel members, but the soldiers who would not darken the doors of a church would volunteer. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so why do you think that's, that's, to me, that's... Because I've seen that too. Yeah. So, yeah, it feels I, so crazy. I think, if I can say, I think it's because they didn't want to create more work. Well, that would be the, the, the chaplains. Cause they're chaplains, they're, yeah. they're like... Yeah, they didn't the, want to... And, 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 and I don't want to demonize all the chaplains. There's, no. There are other good chaplains, but... Yeah, there's lots of good ones. But where I was at, it was kind of like they just wanted to do the chapel. Do the little thing that and they And do what they're do. supposed to do with the, with the soldiers. Mm-hmm. Well, but, you know yourself that... I mean, you, I mean, it sounds like you were pretty... You, you were going off in all sorts of directions, always busy, never resting... And, and you were trying to do good and, and serve in the best way that you could. And so I can understand the temptation to not create extra work. And, and so you think that's, that's the primary motivation would be just not because they already are taxed? Well, and then they, they want to be with their family. If they have any free time, they've, they've spent so much time away from their family. Mm-hmm. And I can understand that. That's, that. But what I wanted them to do is bring their family to the event yeah. and, 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 and let's, let's have this experience we'll together. together. But it is, it is an interesting thing about the way people in, in the West sometimes think about Christianity, which is it's a lot of talking. And to emphasize doing too much, some people would say, you know, that's, that's like a works righteousness. But I think that misses the point entirely. You weren't saying, hey, come, come do this to work to off save your, your sins. <laughs> you're saying in a certain sense, let's redirect your energy because you're already in a living hell. Not because you're going to go to hell if you don't, you know, you know, get your get your points in the right, you know, get get into the the black spiritually speaking in the ledger, but rather you're trying to help people get their minds out of this other tragic aspect of their their story. Yeah, and again, these are young men and women that that are amazing. And, they have and a lot of energy. I had one guy who stayed up all night baking cupcakes, individual cupcakes for every homeless person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was he was a professional baker he, uh, on the side, but it, it was just amazing to me. And and he was uh, he was gay, so he would not be accepted in in many churches today. But he had a compassion for these people that have. And it does something too to give back. Said always, you know, to what you can do to, for somebody mm-hmm. that's in need, mm-hmm. that's oppressed or whatever. You know? well, we almost teach a narcissistic Christianity, and so this is say more of that. That's important. A narcissistic Christianity. What is that? It's, it's all about me, and it's all about my group. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't understand this disdain for the poor and the ostracized that I hear from so many who are followers of Jesus Christ when that's all that he did. That's what he did. He, he, didn't, he didn't hang around with the, the Bubba's. He, he went against the Bubba's, and he went out and hung around with people that no one else would hang around with. Mm. So I, I honestly, I think I've guided my life uh, 
I did say I, I thrive on change, but I've tried to... Lately, I've tried to change my life. What would Sharon do? But then I was doing, what would Jesus do? <laughs> because she's, cause she's, so, she's the least selfish person that I've ever met. And I have a lot of selfishness in me. And I even have some narcissism going on that I have to, to battle. And I learned from her... Uh, I, I asked the question, what would Sharon do right now? Because she would help anybody, anytime, anywhere, anytime. Sacrifice her own health, anything. And I'm not a, as giving, but... Uh, I'm learning from her. I'm learning Jesus through her, uh, and and just trying to mirror. Well, I love that. What would Jesus do? That was so simple. Why'd they go away? That was so beautiful. Well, I certainly think about a number of students that I have that are thinking about going into chaplaincy, either in hospitals or in the military. I tend to think that they are among my best students because they are identifying a place. I think that is both for career and, and, and calling a good spot. But for folks in that spot, do you have any advice? A young person in your same kind of shoes, but now it's 2020, 2019, they're interested in getting into this, both in terms of their career choices and also just how to proceed. No, I, I, I had a wonderful pastor. In fact, growing up, he, he was the youngest chaplain to ever serve in World War II. Youngest chaplain to ever serve in World War II. And he, uh, at my ordination service, he said, love the people. Love the sheep. Love the people. He used the Peter illustration. And I think uh, I have the capacity uh, to do that. And I want to not mold you into a little me, mini-me, but I want you to be the very best that you can be, and I want to help you get there and walk with you and listen to your stories because you are so unique. And Jesus, through you, is going to be somebody that nobody else could be. And you have the potential to change the whole world. And you never know who you're talking to. They might be that person. Uh, they might be a, a Martin Luther King or, or somebody that, uh, because you just reached out and said, I love you. And it's, it's so hard to love some people. They're just really hard to love. And, mm. But I do want to, if we can't conclude, I want to conclude with my, my 20th miracle. Yeah. Mm, that would be awesome. So, or is that going to ruin the book? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's fine. Cool, so. Spoiler, but... Spoiler alert. So, so, I, <laughs> so I, was, uh, I was actually sitting in that chair right there, and I had gone on this... Because I was retired, I was able to, to say a lot more, and I am not shy on Facebook. And so a lot of people were like really demonizing me and attacking me, and it, and family, friends, da 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 da, da. and uh, and I'm not shy about giving my opinion, and I'm not shy in an argument, a, a discussion. And the attacks were coming because you did mention that, yeah. I mean, you have had you have been attacked, but what 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 were they attacking you for? It's usually because I'm I'm not conservative mm. politically. Or Both yeah. uh, Donald Trump has made that a lot worse. Okay. I, that's definite. That's a definite. But uh, not seeing the Bible was inerrant, infallible. Right. Uh, things like that. Uh, but anyway, I just prayed to God. I said, God, there's a lot of people that this is just really upsetting, and I just need to know, am I going in the direction that you want me to go? Can you give me a sign? And I didn't ask for any specific sign. I said, can you give me a sign? And the very next day, because I had this horrific back, I had a horror. I had uh, congenital 
scoliosis, I had stenosis, I had bulging disc. You also fell down a deep, deep hole. I fell down. And on the ground. I also fell in Germany carrying a very, ob- very heavy object, and that's when the back... So it would take me two minutes to get up from a chair. Yeah. I could not pick up my grandchildren. Mm. I, I, was, I was just miserable. I, I couldn't drive over an hour. When she did all the driving because my back was just so horrendous. I couldn't be on an airplane, nothing. The very next day, that pain's all gone. Mm. All gone. Didn't ask for that. Didn't even think about asking for that. But the very next day, and this is... And can I say he's been like that for how many years where you could... Three? No, no, no. I mean, oh. where you had all this pain. It's been a lot of years. Yeah, I couldn't... I definitely couldn't run, and I had trouble walking without pain. Knees, I lived on Motrin. Back. Uh, and, and now I can jump out of this chair if you want me to. I can run around the block if you want to go. I, I just <laughs> thought you had had a, a little achiness. I, this no. Is, this is interesting. So it was debilitating. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, boom. I have a friend, a medical friend, who said, well, God didn't heal you, heal your back. He just took away your pain. I said, I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You can get up out of the chair pretty fast, I, right? Yeah, I can do things. I can live. There were times he could not even, he had to sleep sitting up. Mm. For, well, know, that was my neck. Yeah, that was your neck. Mm. And there were, he went to doctors, and they said there's nothing he could, they could do for it. Uh, your feet. Is that your feet? Yeah, the podi- none of the podiatrists said that. Nothing he could do for his feet. All this is healed, and it was overnight. Mm. And I'm talking, this is years of. Yeah, my knees are It wasn't are healed. like it was like a month of pain. This has been years of pain. Yeah, the 20th was, was when the book finished. There's been others. Mm. This, this whole thing of the face breaking out and all of that, that's gone. Mm. I don't have that anymore. I've just, it's just like crazy. Miracle after miracle. God's affirming my journey. And I just... Uh, I, I, I can't... It's easy to question what you're doing when you've got everybody attacking you, saying oh, yeah. oh, absolutely. you're going... You know, they're, you're too liberal or whatever they say, you know. And, they, and, they, and they're angry. I mean, I think that the yeah, thing that we're, the we're, we're most worried about is this idea that not only do people have a difference of opinion, but they, they, they get into bully mode, especially on fundamentalism uh, and, and politics, where if you step out of line, and, th- and this wasn't something that I remember happening in the 90s. And, you know, you can criticize George Bush and all your Republican friends aren't yeah, going to get angry. Right. But right now, we're at a spot where if you are critical of, of the situation, you, you will find people coming out and getting very vocal. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, they think that's their job. And, and somehow, you. they think you've fallen out of the grace of God. And or, that you're bad. You know, that, that you're you... an evildoer. But the, the thing is, as, as, you're, as you're getting to, uh, is we're, we're finding this ourselves, is that there is a, a, a sense of... Fear, maybe not fear, but there's a loneliness at least as you see people leaving. Or you know, I think John six and and, and Jesus sees all these people just you know bailing on him. He says, "Peter, you're going to leave me too. You you need a few people that are going to stick by you and be honest." But now here you are. You, you need to know that God's on your side. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's uh, that's not exactly how I would have expected this was going to be resolved with these miracles, but it's interesting. You're looking back and you're, and you're seeing your life in gratitude. And then you're also grateful in this time of retirement where you're actually able to bring some wisdom to the rest of us because you have the ability to be slightly more ethical because you're not directly now worried about how this is going to affect a paycheck. 
I am the most dangerous pseudo theologian. I don't want your money. I don't want you to join my group. Uh, You don't have to buy my book. I'm giving away the profits anyway. Uh, I'm just, uh, I I am uh, my favorite verse in the Bible. You you shall know the truth, and truth shall set you free. I am a truth seeker. Mm. And And that's what motivates you. And a Jesus lover. I dig it. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.